0: All right, good morning, everybody. Let's open up to John chapter seven, please. John chapter seven, verse one says, after this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. And we know that John is now focusing in the last six months of Jesus's life because of verse two, which says now the Jews' feast of booze was at hand. And so uh, six months after the Feast of Booths was the Feast of Passover where this time around Jesus would uh, be betrayed and would be crucified so we are six months out from Jesus' death and probably in reality six months out until we get there. Um. (laughs) Now verse one says that Jesus would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. This is what was happening to our Lord. People were wanting to murder him. And the people who wanted to murder him were the actual, the Jewish leaders, the people who were leading Israel. They had murder in their hearts. And this is what John is leading us to understand, the rejection of Jesus, the Son of God, by the masses, as we just learned, by the disciples, those who call themselves disciples, eventually by the disciples within Jesus' rank. Judas himself would betray Jesus, and this would all culminate in the cross where Jesus would be betrayed and crucified, but at this point, that Jewish leadership in the south, they were seeking to kill Jesus. If you remember back to John chapter four, there was a feast of the Jews in Jerusalem, and Jesus healed a guy miraculous, remember that? The guy was at the pool of Siloam and he was really messed up for 38 years, and Jesus uh, says, do you want to be well? And he heals him, and he heals him on the Sabbath. And that was, that was the big issue there. It was the Sabbath. And when the man was confronted, I imagine just being invalid for 38 years, Jesus says, pick up your mat and walk. And he gets up and he starts walking and Jesus disappears into the crowd. And then immediately, the lawyers of the day, they started focusing. They go, hey, who's this guy carrying his mat on the Sabbath? What's this guy doing? So they just, we're at him. He said, who told you to pick up your mat and walk? Because that was his excuse. Hey, I just got healed. And they weren't really concerned about that healing. They're more concerned about who broke the law. Jesus seeks him out a little short while later and says, hey, don't sin anymore unless something else worse that happens to you. Well, instead of him going, yeah, okay, I won't, he goes straight back to the Pharisees and said, oh, yeah, it was Jesus who did that. So he goes ahead and he... he He snitches on Jesus there. And because that miracle's on the Sabbath, along with Jesus teaching that he was the son of God, it says there back in chapter four, verse 18, that the Jews were not only persecuting Jesus, but were seeking to kill him. So these guys in the south, they're seeking to kill Jesus. The power structure, the religious structure of the day were seeking to kill the one whom their whole religious society... Everything that was going on was all about. And they were so blind. And so Jesus stayed away from the south and ministered mostly in the north. But as John often does with feasts, if you look in the book of John, it, he kind of uses feasts to give us timelines and indicators about. Where, where things are and when they're happening, John lets us know that the Feast of Booths was at hand. And we know that every able-bodied Jewish man, according to the law, they had to go down three times a year to these three feasts and, and be there in Jerusalem. So Jesus would have to go down to Jerusalem to fulfill the law, as Deuteronomy sixteen sixteen says. But before we move on to this, it's important to know that there's a six-month gap in between chapter six and chapter seven. John doesn't tell you, but there's a six-month gap And between that Passover and the the Feast of Tabernacles, the Passover in chapter six, and the Feast of Tabernacles in chapter seven. So John really doesn't tell us anything about that, but as a side note, uh, Jesus is is going around healing during this time, he is uh, casting out demons, he feeds the 4,000, he already fed the 5,000, now he's feeding the 4,000. And Jesus just spends a lot of time with his disciples. This is really an intense time of discipleship that Jesus is having with his disciples because it's at this time that he begins to tell them, hey, guys, guess what's gonna happen very shortly? Within a year, I am going to be betrayed, I'm going to be crucified, and I will rise again. And this is where you get Peter saying, not so, Lord, and all this type of stuff that's going on. And uh, Jesus, uh, Peter also declares during this time, you, are, you know, G- Jesus is asking everybody, hey, who do you say that I am? And, and Peter says, you're, you're the Christ, you're the son of God. He has this magnificent declaration there. But it's also when Jesus is transfigured before Peter, James, and John. And so they see a picture of this glorified Jesus Christ, whiter than any white they'd ever seen, and here he is in all his glory with Moses and and Elijah, Elijah, and, and, and then the Father just makes it very plain as Jesus comes into view. There's a bunch more there. But Jesus was focused on discipleship during this time and trusting to faithful men who would be able to teach others. And that's the gist of discipleship. It's interesting that the pastors and I, we just got away this past week and we were talking and praying about discipleship. And this was Jesus' plan to replicate himself in the lives of these men who would then go on to replicate their, the lives of Jesus and the lives of others and here we are today. Pretty interesting, huh? And just as Jesus gave us that picture of him uh, being the bread of life, of Jesus taking that bread and breaking it and giving it to his disciples and his disciples giving it away and all those who ate became kind of part of that same bread. So Jesus himself was broken, was given to his disciples. His disciples gave Jesus away to anyone who would receive him and at the end of the age, Jesus will gather all those who are part of the body of Christ back to himself that none shall be lost. It's discipleship there. Go and make disciples, right? And so... That's what the church is about. The church isn't about doing new and hip and fun things. We're in the old ancient stuff before the foundations of the earth. People go, oh man, you know, you gotta have lights and you gotta have whistles and all that stuff, and, and you know, it's great to have electronics. I love that, but that's not that's not the core of who we are. We're about Jesus Christ about him being formed in us, this broken, horrible clay pots that he would over time form himself in us and then as we change into his likeness that um, we would give ourselves away, give him away, that others might receive the gospel, be born again by God's grace, be changed and be formed in the image of Christ himself that Anyone who believes upon him would have eternal life, would be gathered together, the precious body of Christ. That's what Arthur was talking about. So part, it's a together thing. And this is what we want to focus on next year, is is being in each other's lives to a greater degree, because I realize by nature I'm sinful in that area. Wanting to give myself away, be more involved in other people's lives, not for the sake of getting to know what football team you like, I mean, that's great and fun, but Christ in me and in you, amen? Growing in him, knowing him more, losing ourselves in him, being dedicated to that, and then going out and, and, and proclaiming him through our preaching and through our practice. So I want to see more of that in 2020, but this intense discipleship was happening with the disciples there during that six month gap of time. It was happening during the whole time, but really intensely during that time between the Passover of John 6 and the Feast of Booze in John 7. Now the Feast of Booze in verse 2 is also called the Feast of Tabernacles. And these are some really neat pictures that John is going to develop here, but It was a feast commemorating how God miraculously sustained the people of Israel, the Hebrews, for 40 years in the wilderness. God miraculously sustained a group of people, around one million people in the wilderness for 40 years. Just by amazing means. And it's really equivalent to our Thanksgiving. That's what it is. And I think we, we kind of got our idea of Thanksgiving from the Jews from this, but it was held at the end of October or at the end of September, October, and it's really at the end of harvest, and you're thanking God for the harvest you've had and for the harvest that will be and the provision, but unlike the other feasts, the other two feasts were really somber. They're really uh, mournful and reflective and these types of things, and, and, and this one was really, God commanded them to absolutely jump for joy, to freak out, not lose control, but but just to let it loose, just to thank God with great amounts of praise and joy and celebration and feasting and all these types of things, not in a broken, fallen way, but in a worship kind of way. Kind of like Thanksgiving, without football. And this lasted for seven days, seven days. How cool is that? You're commanded for seven days to all hang out and to be thankful. To remember that all that God has done for you. How many of you kind of get around the Thanksgiving table, I've been guilty of this, and you sit there and go, hey, you know, what are you thankful for? You're like, oh, okay, what am I thankful for? Let's find this, this thing that I'm thankful for. Hey, I'm thankful for food. You know, we just start really, you know, but I mean, think about, and you start, as your mind starts to go, all of a sudden, you start thinking about what a blessing you have in front of you, Look what a blessing it is that you have around you and the life, the very life that we have, the place that we live, the people that we're in contact with, the jobs that we have, uh, even our bosses that drive us crazy or whatever it might be, it's like, man, that I get to work is an amazing thing. And you just start to overflow with thanksgiving towards the Lord, that I can work, that I can use my mind, that I can think, that I can move, and you just start rejoicing in all that God has given you in his grace. Seven days of that. Remembering God's provision. If you remember, there, there was around one million Hebrews that, that were wandering around the wilderness. One million. And so the feast, it lasted for seven days. And, and what they did to commemorate this is they built themselves makeshift tents. It's also the Feast of Booths, Feast, feast of Tabernacles, the same thing. Because they dwelt for 40 years. They didn't build houses. They were moving constantly. And they had makeshift tents. They were nomads for 40 years, and so what the people do is they come to the city, and they build these little tents out of, um, out of palm branches, and if you were in the city, you'd have little booze on top of your roof or in the street square, if you've already lived in Jerusalem proper. So there's just people coming, and there's just all these, like, makesh- it was tent city inside Jerusalem. And there's just kind of crazy food going on in everywhere. There's the temple and all the smoke's going up. There's celebrations and it's pretty, pretty amazing. But it commemorated what God did to provide for them as they were in the wilderness. How that God led them by a, a fire by night. In a cloud by day. The, the very presence of God moved them as a people. And wherever he went, they went. The picture of the church. We don't follow a man. We follow our king, Jesus. And wherever his spirit decides we go, we follow as a church. And discerning that and looking at to him and seeing him and knowing his heart and finding where you're going, Lord? What are you doing? In his revealed word. And also in the practical day-to-day, you know, how that plays out but also how he provided manna and quail that they could survive in the wilderness, this miraculous provision over and over, how he provided water. You know, Moses struck that rock. Second time he struck it and got in trouble, but he spoke it to the second time. God provided over and over, he provided water, he provided food, he provided shelter, he provided direction. So here they are with that In their, in their mind, in their memory, they're remembering. And they're building these booths and they're actually kind of forcing themselves to remember what's going on. And so there's these parties at the time of Christ. Josephus, the historian, describes these in great detail, by the way. And these celebrations had rites involved. And, and during these celebrations, there were like three rites that were going on and rites kind of things that they would do to help remember things. And, and there was this libation where they, of water where they would take water from the Pool of Shalom where that guy was, Shalom, where he was healed and they would take this water and they'd bring it to the temple and they'd pour it out. And so there'd just be this water being rolling down from the temple. And then there'd be a festival of lights that the, we had and they got their hot air balloons together and said burn, burn, and the whole place lit up. No, that's not what happened. Similar, they had a festival, but the whole, there would just be this lighting of Jerusalem at night, and there would just be this, the place would just glow. So you had the water, and you had the light, and Jesus is going to develop this in John chapter 7, John chapter 8. As these things are going on, and the water is being poured out, what does he cry out? As the lights light up, what does he cry out? Beautiful, all right here. We'll get to the significance of those a little bit more. And so John tells us in verse two that the feast of booze was at hand. Picking up verse three. And so his brothers said to him, leave here and go to Judea that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. Verse four, for no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. In verse five, for not even his brothers believed in him. Sounds contrary Sounds like they believe in him. They're like, hey man, go show your stuff. But we find out that what they were saying was actually rooted in unbelief in verse five. Back in chapter 12, I'm sorry, back in chapter two, John tells us that Jesus had brothers. We learned that back then. Joseph had most likely Jesus's kind of supposed father there, Mary's husband, had most likely had already passed away by this point. We don't see him on the scene. But Mary, after miraculously conceiving Jesus, went on to have kids with her husband Joseph. And and so these were uh, the brothers there mentioned, and we actually know who they are. They're the half-brothers of Jesus there. Matthew 13, 55 says that they were named James, and Joseph, and Simon, and Judas, not Judas Iscariot, we, we know him as, a, as Jude. And at this point, verse five, they don't believe in the Lord at all whatsoever. But we know from Acts 1.14 that they are in the upper room at the resurrection, after the resurrection when the Holy Spirit fell, all these types of things, they came to believe after the resurrection. And that's probably what it would take for you to believe that your older brother was the Messiah. <laughs> And boy, did they believe. James goes on to write the book of James, and he becomes the head of the church. And, And Judas, or Jude, goes on to write the book of Jude. Have you read the book of James or read the book of Jude? Fiery stuff. I mean, these guys were all in, Bible thumpers. Like, loved their brother, knew he was the Messiah, all in. Pretty amazing stuff. And so this family was eventually totally transformed by the resurrection of their half-brother. But here in John 7, they did not believe that their half-brother was the Messiah. Can you imagine that? Growing up and having an older half-brother that was Jesus. You know, he was always right. He never lied. He never did anything wrong. He never spoke an evil word. He was always obedient, always loving. Always kind, always patient, always knew, you know, the next move you were making when you guys were playing games at the table. (laughs) Just a perfect brother. (laughs) Just perfect in every way. I mean, there's so many directions you could go from there, but these guys grew up with Jesus, is what I'm saying. And no doubt they knew he was someone special over the years, but they didn't believe. Isn't that interesting? They saw the miracles, they saw those things happen, they knew who he was, they heard the stories probably from mom, even though it does say that she hid those things in her heart. They didn't believe. And that just begs the question, what is Jesus getting at? What does he desire from us? What is belief, what is faith? What is he getting us to trust in? I don't even think it's that he can do all those things. It's who he is, to know him. He is the son of God, he is eternal life. The person of Jesus is eternal life and listen, all the things he did were just to prove that he came to earth, he was born of a virgin. He healed people. He cast out demons. He, he stopped the winds and waves. I mean, this is not just made up stuff. The world has been changed. It's never, it's never been the same. This is a real person. Real witness, uh, witnesses witnessed this. 500 people saw the guy resurrected. now these brothers are watching him perform the miracles. They're watching him teach. They're watching him cast out demons. They were there probably at the, at the wedding feast in Cana. They watched him turn water into wine. And yet they did not believe. Now no doubt they saw and they believed what he was doing. But they did not believe that their half-brother was the son of God. That's what they needed to believe. That's what a believer is. They believe that he is God's son. That he is God's provision for eternal life. That's the gospel. And instead of faith, we see they challenge Jesus here in verse three. They say, hey, leave here and go to Judea that your disciples also may see the works you're doing. For no one works in secret if they seek to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. If you are who you say you are, prove it to the world. Get out there. You need to hit Facebook, you need to go do your thing, you need to PR yourself like crazy. You know, you need to get media thing going. That's how the world works. You seek to make your name known and put it on top of a tall building. That's what's in the heart of men. Go do it. Go down to the south. Go down to the middle of the power structure. Disciples in the north here are leaving you, but hey, maybe the guys in the south are going to get it. Go down there. Openly claim who you say you are. Do those massive works. That seems to be the sediment here. Not rooted in faith and belief, but some kind of maybe desire to see their brother take over power. Again, as we've said before, the Jews wanted a political messiah. They wanted someone to rescue them. They wanted some guy who could make bread for them day in, day out. They wanted someone to take over the Romans. They wanted someone to be their their guy. They are waiting for him. This might be the motivation of their brothers. Go do it, you know? Stop hiding who you are. And we know from verse five, none of their comments were based on faith. They didn't believe and So their motivation, whatever it, whatever it actually was, is worldly. And So Jesus tells them in verse six, Jesus says to them, my, my time has not yet come, but your time is always here. Jesus tells them he is on a different schedule. He is on God's schedule. Jesus was not going to go against his Father's divine timetable because going down to the south and openly doing this would mean that who's after him down there? They would arrest him, they would take him, they would crucify him, and that wasn't what God was up to yet. He needed more time. It would be Passover, the next Passover. That's when that's gonna happen. And Jesus would go down and would go riding on a donkey, not in blazing glory, but humble on a donkey and they would cry out hosanna at the beginning of the week and at the end of the week that same crowd would be crying out crucify him and they would run those spikes through him and put that that crown of thorns on him and throw him up on that cross like that overnight and Jesus knew this the night that Jesus was betrayed Jesus is praying in that upper room with his disciples six months from this time. In John 17, it says, Jesus lifting up his eyes to heaven, he prays. He says, Father, the hour has come. Now is the time. Glorify your son that he may glorify you. How is the son glorified? He was lifted up. He was crucified. He laid his life down. That all men who believe might be drawn to the Father. And He was resurrected beautiful. But that hour is not yet. Jesus says to his brothers, not yet. Verse seven, Jesus says to them, the world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. And this is the thing that people hate about Jesus, at least the Jesus that's the real Jesus, is he confronts sin. He confronts evil. He confronts Evil in society. He, he he says that the world is full of evil works, and the prideful human heart says, "Don't judge me." When he's actually one who wrote that, "Don't judge, lest you be judged." <laughs> but Jesus tells his brothers, as they're the world cannot hate you, but it hates me. No one's after you guys, but they're after me. You guys are free to go. You can go wherever you want. You're not under a divine timetable. But guess what? This life is ending at the cross. That's where it's going. This world is going to reject me. It does reject me. You're no threat to the world, but I am a threat to them. Why? Because of his testimony that their works are evil. The light had come into the darkness. John 3.19, this is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. This is what Jesus is doing. This is what he's doing this morning, his spirit. His light comes into your world and says, you must repent, you must believe, you must turn from that evil. And Everything within you goes, no, it's not... You're, you're foolish, you're this, that, this. And you just kind of start to, shields up. And then you get people around you tell you what you want to hear. You go to the websites you want to read and all this type of stuff, you know, and you just build your own paradigm of darkness, which is the whole world is in. And then off you go. But Jesus walks in and he says, man, your deeds are evil. Unless you repent, lest you turn and you believe upon me, lest you receive my life, lest you eat of my flesh and drink of my blood, unless I am your life, you have no life in you. But I am offering it freely to you today, this morning. That's what Jesus does. The world hated Jesus because he revealed their hearts in light of God's holiness. For some reason, the church has got a great idea to just dumb down the holiness of God and to act like it. To make God your friend and he is our friend, but is that the emphasis of scripture? He did condescend. But did he condescend to keep us down or to lift us up? To lift us up, to put his spirit within us that we would lose our lives, right? So the world hates Jesus because he reveals their hearts and the lights of God's holiness. And a little later on in John 15, by the way, this connects to us, church. Jesus is speaking to his disciples about this very issue of being hated by the world in verses 18 and 19 of John 15, great chapter. He says, hey, abide in me. And he does this whole abiding thing. And then he keeps on going, he says if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. So out of this abiding relationship with Christ, out of being his, out of receiving your life from him, if you are his, if your life is bound up in him, and they hated him, guess who the world's gonna hate? You, by nature of your nature. (laughs) Right, your new nature. If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. The world gets along with itself. I know they, they kill each other and all that stuff, but in general, when you're talking about holiness and righteousness and these things, man, there's, a, there's an absolute vengeance towards those things on their part because you are not of this world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Jesus was hated by the world, and all those whom he chose out of the world are hated as well, because by our very lives we testify of his light. Amen? And by doing so, we testify that this generation is evil. This is why I struggle with the church sometimes, struggle with my own life, is that, um, you know, supposedly, supposedly uh, I mean, really, the gospel is that we surrender our lives to the Lord Jesus. We, we totally abandon our lives. We call sin what it is. It's sin, right? And we know it's in us. We know it's around us. We know it permeates our culture. We know we're just, like, done. We're, be- we're before the Lord going, God, we're just messed up. God, save me. And the idea is that the Lord's spirit within you has that. When he's in you, there's this, there's this hatred of sin that's in and without And and as the spirit gives us grace, we are slaying our sin like we sent, so to speak. Uh, You know, we're we're giving him opportunity to take ground every single day that Christ might be formed in us. More of him, less of us, right? But somehow we get around to going, Jesus saves, but he doesn't change. And he only changes on certain things. And so what about... Social issues. Why in the world would we celebrate what Christ died to save us from? That's just horrible. It's blasphemy. On all counts. You know, we might have the hot button issues of LGBTQ, fill in the blank, you know? But what about divorce? What about adultery? What about. You know, just other things. Pride. Greed. What about forsaking one another for the love of the world? What about abandoning the church for our own pleasures? You know, I'm just saying it goes a lot deeper. It starts to convict, right? And instead of us going, ah, you know, well, here's where I draw the line, Lord. You know, (laughs) now it's like, you have all of me, God. Let's keep going after you. I want to keep following you on all these things. Keep being formed in me. You know, and it's weird as you grow with the Lord, you're not trying to grow meaner in the Lord, right? You're not, (laughs) you know, you should be more compassionate, more gracious, more patient, more kind, all these types of things, and Lord help. I see the standard, but then, but then again, you're also more clear. You're not backing down from these things. You become like a James, you become like a Jude. Where sin is definitely sin. There's a holiness about your life. Not a holier than thou, but Lord saved us. Why would I even mess with this stuff, right? And that's a conviction of the Holy Spirit, to, to sanctify us, that's the Christianese word in Christ Jesus, to make us less like the world and more like Christ. We are pulled out of the world, we're called out of the world. And so no, we, the church should not mimic the world. We should look totally different. And not for the sake of looking different. We just wanna look like Jesus, act like Jesus, love like Jesus, be long suffering like Jesus, speak the truth like Jesus, and be hated like Jesus. The fact that we are those who have repented and turned from this dark, the darkness of the world, it testifies that the works are evil, you see that? It's when you get called out of it and you're no longer a part of it. It testifies that those things are evil and they're wrong. And it's not like, oh, that was wrong for me, but it's not wrong for you. No, it's just flat out against God's holiness. It's the way it is. So Jesus says, man, if you, if you are following me, if, if, yours, if you're mine, I'm yours, there's gonna be this there's just gonna be this water and oil thing with you in the world. With you in your old life. With you and the people of the world. There's just gonna be that. With your family members who don't know Christ, I've come to bring a sword. Because that's the nature of the kingdom, darkness and light. They're, they're just two different things. And we're not going into the darkness and putting on a dark cloak to go grab people. We're light in the darkness, and those who see the light come to the light. Amen? <laughs> Total difference, don't be fooled. Be a Christian, follow Jesus. You don't have to change the way you look, the way you cut your hair, all that kind of stuff. You follow him, let his spirit fill you and let him where he's placed you just shine the love of Christ. And let me tell you, man, God God uses the strangest people. He uses you guys, (laughs) he does, I see it, it's like, it's awesome. But John speaks to John 15 speaks to us as followers of Jesus that if we abide in him the result will be the same as Jesus we will be hated by the world and that is the effect that salt and light have and Jesus is telling his brothers at this point the world cannot hate you you're of it You see that? You're of it. Very interesting. How many Claim to be his and yet we are embraced by the world around us as if their own. That Should be convicting, huh? Not that you go out and start fights, that's not what I'm saying for crying out loud. Just by the very nature of who we are, we stand for righteousness in what we say and what we do. Jesus says to his brothers, in a matter of words, I'm all about my Father's will, and it isn't my Father's will that I am be revealed openly. So he tells them, in verse 8, you go up to the feast. I'm not going yet or going up uh, to this point, depends on your translation there, um, to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. And after saying this, he remained in Galilee. So Jesus tells him, I'm not going to go up there um, and do this the way you want it to happen. And after that, he remains in Galilee. But verse 10 says, but after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, in private. Now you go, oh, well, Jesus is lying there. He's not lying. He was simply telling them that they, he was not going to go do what they wanted to do in the manner of the way he was going to do it. And what John doesn't tell you, which is interesting, uh, what Jesus said, he's, I'm going to go up in private. And uh, what John doesn't tell you is that Jesus stayed in Galilee, well he does say he stayed in Galilee, but he went through Samaria, he ministers in Samaria for a bit, for a matter of days and all that stuff, and he doesn't get to the feast until the middle of the feast. And so he's, he doesn't go up with everybody, traditionally be there the first few days before he's hanging out and doing other things with the Samaritans. And so uh, we find in verse 14 that he's there in the middle of it, but verse 11 through 13 tells us the word on the street real quickly, and we'll, we'll kind of finish here. Uh, in Jerusalem, in verse 11 says, the Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? Now, so you have the leadership. I think when it refers to the Jews here, this, I, I believe it's talking about the leadership. It's talking about the leadership in the south. It has all the way through John Talk about the Jews, this would be the Sanhedrin, this would be those groups of the leaders that were seeking to kill him and they wanna know where he is. They know, hey, it's feast time, he's a male, he says he's a rabbi, he's gotta be here. Where is he? They were wondering where he was, verse 12. And here's the word on the street, verse 12. And there was much muttering about him among the people at the feast, right? where some said, hey, he's a good man. Others said, no, he's leading the people astray. So it's very, it's like a political season here. Uh, Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. So the Jews were out to kill him. And all the pilgrims who were kind of coming in from everywhere else, not everybody was from Jerusalem, they're all converging. Josephus says there might have been as many as one or two million people converging on that city. Crazy during feast time. So as this happens, there's tons of opinions. The leaders are of one opinion, they want to kill him, and then you can see the division among the people. Oh, he's basically a good guy. And then you've got the other people going, No, he's leading the people astray. And so you've got this whole political dynamic going on there. People were divided. But here's the point, that no one spoke openly about him for fear of the Jews. <laughs> the Jewish leaders could excommunicate you if you disagreed with them. And it's funny, It says that they fear the Jews, but the other Gospels, and even later, I think maybe later in John, it says that the Jews were afraid to arrest Jesus for fear of crowds. (laughs) They're all afraid of each other, but nobody's fearing God. Fear God, church. (laughs) Don't worry about what political this and what your boss says and this person around you and all this type of stuff about what people think about Jesus Believe who he is. He is the son of God. He is the way, the truth, and life. Live it. Proclaim it. When he gives you opportunity. Amen? Don't fear. Man, fear God. That's important. Let's end there. It's a big mess of unbelief there. Lord, we, uh, we come to you humbly and, and, and well, there was a lot. There's a lot more there, but this just passage just shows that um, how how wicked our hearts are. That mankind sought not only to reject you and not follow you anymore, and to be in unbelief about you, but to ultimately crucify you, both Jew and Gentile. And Lord, the story has been the same in the hearts of men throughout the ages, Lord. Where you've been nothing but gracious and kind and merciful to us, Lord, in the midst of our own sinfulness and the midst of this fallen world as a result of our sin, Lord. And yet, when you offer forgiveness, when you offer your grace, when you offer your life for us, we think we have life. We think we have a better way. We think that we are going to find it, when actually, Lord, we need to lose it. Thank you for losing yours on our behalf. Thank you for putting up with all of this, where at one word, Father, you could have spoken and we're all just toast, and yet in your divine plan, you desire to draw men and women and those who would believe to yourself that they would receive your life. A life that isn't within them, it's from outside. And that you promise to forgive and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. You promise to give us new life by trusting in your son. How gracious you've been. Help us to walk worthy of the calling in which we've been called. May we be unashamed to align our lives and our hearts and our manner of living with you in this dark and perverse generation, Lord, of whom you've called us out of, of whom we've totally been ensnared, if not for by your grace. And so, Lord, we we pray for holy lives We pray for lives set apart. We pray that our sin would be cleansed, God, and our ways would be straight and narrow, just as yours were. We pray that it wouldn't be our hipness or our abilities and specialness of who we are and all this kind of stuff that the world thinks is wonderful. But it'd just be you and us. Your power, your grace, your gospel, transforms our lives and comes out of our mouths. And may you bring many, many out of these dark and treacherous waters into the salvation that is Christ. And so Lord, thank you so much for your church. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the time of communion with you today, Lord, the church shared and we just ask for you to do your work continually. In your name, amen.